Thank you for listening to this week's message from New Day Community Church in Vandalia. We hope this message encourages and blesses you. Look us up and contact us at newdaycommunity.org. The last time you saw me, I had like a beard down here and a big ponytail, so that's gone. My wife sent me a text and said, Honey, I think I miss your face. And I, the only appropriate response to that is to shave off the hair. So I did. So it's really me. I'm happy to be here with you guys. And we are talking about one of my favorite topics, which is God himself. We're in the upward journey, and we are spending some time learning about God. And it's not just for academic purposes. We have a catchphrase for the upward journey, and that is this, beholding and becoming. And that comes right out of the Bible. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he says, this is what we're about. We all, with unveiled face, with no barrier, okay, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So Paul's saying, look, you become like the people you associate with, right? So we want to associate with God. If you're going to have somebody rub off on you, if somebody's character is going to be shown in you, if you're going to get more like the company you keep, keep company with God. Stare at him, learn about him, become like him. It will be difficult not to become like God if you are actually staring at God and becoming like God and getting to know God. Does that make sense? So the upward journey is all about beholding and becoming. If Cameron asks you what you got out of the upward journey, please tell him you got the catchphrase, beholding and becoming, and that I reinforced it. I would really appreciate that. All right, moving on. For two months, we've been focusing on the attributes of God. So that brings up the question, if you've never really heard about an attribute, if that sounds like a funny word, what in the world is it? Well, an attribute is just something that answers the question, what is God like? And here's a quote from A.W. Tozer. He wrote, by the way, a name like Tozer, to me that sounds like something out of Ghostbusters, right? It sounds like so out there and, you know, he must be really deep and hard to read with a name like Tozer. He wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, which also sounds very impressive, but it's actually short and readable. So that's a win-win. You could tell people you read Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy and they'd be like, wow, but it's actually like this thick and super good. So it's all about the attributes of God. And here's what Tozer says. An attribute of God is whatever God has in any way revealed as being true of himself. It is also something we can conceive as being true of him. God being infinite must possess attributes of which we can know nothing. I love that he said that for this reason. Sometimes the temptation strikes. If you've been a Christian for 5, 10, 20, 30 years... Somehow we think we've got God all figured out, right? We've read the Bible enough. We've prayed enough. We've been around enough Christians. It's true. We can know things for sure. If God says, I am loving, we can take that to the bank. God is loving. If he says, I'm merciful, we can believe that. But we, we almost demystify God. We tend to think God will never surprise us. My best friend may. You know, I might still find out new things about my wife. She may act in unexpected ways. But we don't expect that of God anymore because we've kind of forgot that he's God. So Tozer's reminding us here, don't forget he's infinite. Believe what he says about himself, but don't forget he's God. Is that a good reminder? Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to slow down a little bit. I tell you, all 75 minutes of this message are really good. It's just really good. You're going to, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'll keep going. All right, today's attribute is holiness. I love holiness. I think it's great. I like preaching about it. 
And this is right on the cusp of what we can conceive about God and what we can't. It's kind of mysterious. It's all over the Bible. You can't read the Old Testament especially without coming away with the fact that God is holy. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 sucked up into heaven, beholds God. He's super impressed. He's scared for his life. And he sees these angels flying around God's head. And they're saying, what are they saying? Who's read it? Holy, 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 over and over and over again. Wow. All over the Old Testament, God is holy. He's the Holy One of Israel. His holiness is important to him. Holy, holy, holy. But what in the world is holiness? It doesn't answer the question. It's super important, but what is it? And so, in my mind, when I thought of holiness, I had a very specific picture. And if you think that God's holy and you take what you think holy people look like and apply it to God, it's quite comical. You know, God has a sour expression on his face. He only exists to scrutinize your behavior. And he's wearing clothes that went out of style maybe in the 1600s. You know, and if the angels are chanting that about God, saying, holy, 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 I just want to challenge you today. Holiness and God are much better than you think. They're much better than you think. So let's dive right in with an engaging and extended quote from Leviticus. I am the Lord your God, who has set you apart from the nations. You must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals and between unclean and clean birds. Do not defile yourselves by any animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground, those that I have set apart as unclean for you. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Leviticus? I'm Irish now. Leviticus 20:24b 20, to 26. There's a lot about holiness in Leviticus. There's a lot of weird stuff in Leviticus. Has anybody read Leviticus? Leviticus numbers. I mean, it's like don't eat catfish or lobster and have a roof that has a fence around it, okay? And don't wear clothing with mixed fabrics and when you plant your fields, you can only plant one kind of crop in each field. You can't plant two. Oh, and this is really important also. Don't trim the corners of your beard. Let them grow. And uh, I want you to schedule your time around this one special day where you do nothing. Nobody else is doing that, but you do it. Why? There's just weird stuff. And there's some weird stuff here about sacrifices and birds. Whatever. We're not focused on that right now. What we're focused on now is holiness. Holiness jumps out right out of this verse because it's mentioned twice. But I want to say something else about this verse. There's another word here that's used four times. And that word is translated set apart and make a distinction in this passage. It's the same word. And it actually is very important to our concept of holiness. I know we're in Leviticus, starting Leviticus. Where is this going to go? You're scared? It's all right. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. We're going to Numbers next. Not really. Let's dig into what this word translates here. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but the word that's translated set apart or make a distinction is the Hebrew word badal. I think I'm saying that correctly. And my Munz's expository says that this word means to separate oneself, to be expelled, to separate or sever completely, and to distinguish between. The Blue Letter Bible, which I highly suggest in every sermon I do, getting the Blue Letter Bible app on your phone, it is fantastic, and you can be a fake Hebrew scholar just like me. But the Blue Letter Bible says this word is used in Scripture to mean to divide, to separate, to sever, or in bold, to make 
a distinction. Somebody say distinct. Distinct. We are going to come back to this word over and over and over again. Distinct. Distinction. Distinct. Here's an example of this word used in Scripture to describe the priests giving a bird sacrifice. Okay, God really cares about how the sacrifices were offered. So in Leviticus 1, 16 and 17, he gives these instructions. He, the priest, shall remove its crop with its contest, contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for the ashes. He shall tear it open. He's talking about the dead bird. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. That is a violent image, is it not? We imagine everything, the bird's been gutted, the crop's gone, and the priest grabs the bird and rips it, severs it. This is that word, badal, that means to make a distinction or to separate. It's as if I had a giant piece of paper up here hanging, and I ran up from the back of the room and grabbed it and just ripped off a chunk of paper and said, this is mine now. I have badaled it. I'm ruining that word. Forgive me. I kind of like doing that. I've separated it off. I've severed it completely. It's no longer part of what it was part of. I have made a distinction. That's what this word is saying. Everybody's good on that? Holiness conveys this idea. Separation, distinction. Something ripped off of where it was and separated. They had a context for this in the ancient world. When Moses was writing this thousands of years ago, he was writing it to a world and to cultures that already kind of had a grid for this kind of holiness. They already kind of knew that things could be separated off for a divine purpose, but they thought about it a little funny. The biblical version of holiness is different. In the ancient world the old, of the Old Testament, many objects, places, or people could be holy. This is kind of unique. So think about it. All these pagan cultures have pagan temples, right, to their pagan gods. I think I used, to, I used to believe that you built the temple and then the spot's holy, but they didn't think that. They thought the exact opposite. Some god decided this is holy ground, so this is where we build the temple. Where was Moses raised? Egypt, in a pagan culture, around other pagan cultures. So one day he's on the mountain, and he sees this burning bush, and a voice says, hey, take off your shoes, Moses, for the spot you're standing on is holy ground. He already understands this concept. He's got a great grid for this. That's why it wasn't weird. It was as if he went to sit down on the divine couch and God was like, you're in my spot. He's like, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. I didn't realize this was a holy seat. You know, so he takes off his shoes and he complies. Because in the old, ancient Near East, a God could just decide, this is my holy spot, this is holy ground. But in contrast to these cultures, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, declares himself to be holy and the focal point of all holiness. Hence, God saying, you are to be holy to me, for I am holy. This seems normal to us because we've read the Bible. But if you were one of these pagan cultures from thousands of years ago, that would seem a little odd. Because you don't have their fake little g, quote-unquote, gods running around declaring themselves holy. They're not doing that. What does it mean that the God himself is distinct, separated off? I want to give you guys at least two good takeaways to kind of de-weird holiness. So when you leave today, you can think, God is holy, and this might not be everything that means, but it definitely means this, and it means this. This is these are two ways that God is distinct. Does that sound good? All right. And there's also three challenges. 
that go along with the message, which I like. Number one, God is holy. God is distinct in his very being. The godness of God is unique. All the ancient gods had beginnings. All of them. There were no ancient little g fake gods that didn't have a start somewhere. And usually, all these gods, and they're being worshipped by these ancient cultures, if you ask them, when did the sun god come about? They would say, well, when the sun got here. If you ask them, why do we have a storm god? They would probably say, because we have storms. Well, how long have you had a sea god? Well, as long as the ocean's been around. So the beginnings of their gods were tied to the beginning of these natural events. They didn't really have a concept of an eternal creator. In fact, in some of their stories, many of them, especially in Egypt and Mesopotamia, the first gods came out of this primordial chaos water. I'm not making this up. So you put the kids to bed, and you tell these amazing, violent, out-there cosmic stories about how the gods came into existence, right? So like in Egypt, you have the, the chaos water, and there's wind, and the first god, I think his name was a tomb or something. I, I forget. It's ironic, a tomb. But he comes up out of the water, and then he makes all the other gods. But the dude's got a beginning. Does that make sense? They all started from somewhere. Look at the first two verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and dark darkness was over the surface of the deep. Whoa, we're in for a story now. We're about to hear the God arising out of the chaos waters, right? There's about to be an epic tale of how our gods got here. Not so. You'd be very disappointed if you were from these pagan cultures and you expected to hear about the beginning of Israel's God because the next sentence is, darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Why is that so important? Because from the very beginning of the Bible, God wants you to know, I am in no way like the other gods. I am in no way similar to any other culture's God that you've ever heard about in your life. I didn't come out of this stuff. I made this stuff. I am not tied to the beginning of the sun. I made the sun. In fact, I just call it the big light in the sky. I'm in no way tied to the beginning of the moon. I just call it the smaller light in the sky. And the ocean, I made that too. And I'll call it the water. God is making a stark statement. I'm holy. I'm distinct. I'm unique. I'm separate from all these other gods that are not holy. And the Bible teaches the same thing about Jesus. John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. You know, I used to think John must have been 97 years old and senile when he wrote this. Like, you just said the same thing five times. What are you doing, John? Like, some, you know, just look back at what you wrote. Okay, he's God. He was with God in the beginning. He made stuff. We got it. But he's not senile. He's not crazy. He's making a point. I didn't come from somewhere, says God. You have this first guy that arises out of the waters and the ancient cultures, and then he makes the other gods in really weird ways. This Egyptian god, a tomb, there are stories of him making the other gods out of bodily fluid. Like, let's name some. Spit, sweat. Let's just stop there. 
the stories are bizarre, okay? It's really, really weird stuff. And it's very important to the New Testament authors that you know Jesus didn't come from that stuff like that. He is God. Same truths apply. He's holy. He's distinct. He's not like them. He didn't have a beginning. He's other. He's above. He doesn't fit in to that grid. Amen? This distinction is super important because these ancient gods that God is distinguishing himself from had really undesirable qualities. Why do they have undesirable qualities? Well, here's a quote from one of my favorite nerds, John Walton, who writes a lot about the Old Testament. He says, the baser qualities of these gods, so the nastier stuff, came with the fact that the deities of the ancient Near East were perceived in human terms. Of course, the Israelites had to be constantly reminded by the prophets that Yahweh is not like a human and not like the other gods. So we have a sick progression here that God constantly has to fight against, and that is this. He makes mankind good in his own image, right? Which already is a big step away from God himself, but at least we're made in the right image, right? We become corrupted, fallen, nasty, and deceived through sin. Then we decide we'll make gods in our image, And when Yahweh reintroduces himself, they say, oh, we know exactly what you're like. You're like these twisted sick gods that we've made in our twisted sick image. And God has to say, no, 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 no. First verses of the Bible, you need to know, I'm not like that. And I'm not like that because I'm not like you. I'm holy. I'm distinct. I'm separate from your ideas of what you think a God is. Challenge number one. Is your view of God distinct enough? Or is it really just too human? You know, we don't say silly stuff usually. If we've been a Christian for longer than, I don't know, a year, or we've been to Sunday school, we would never seriously say something like, you know, I've decided God must have had a beginning. We usually guard ourselves against something so silly that would challenge God's holiness in that way. But if we're going to maintain the fact that he's distinct in his very being, that he's in no way like a man and he's in no way like these other gods, we have to guard our mind against these kinds of assumptions. Here we go. If you've ever thought of God as petty or vindictive, if you've ever thought of God as unreliable, he's hit and miss, you know. Sometimes he makes a good decision. Sometimes it's not so good. Sometimes he, his plans are 100% dead on and sometimes it's 50-50 and eh, maybe it could have done better there, God. If you've ever ever thought of God of that way, or as passive-aggressive, the reason you got in that fender bender is because you tithed 9.5% last week, and God just chose now to get back at you. If he's constantly ambiguous, if you think that God enjoys being unclear to watch you try to figure out what he's talking about, or if you think he's in any way snarky, you mess up, and you imagine the divine eye roll, and God says, nice job, genius. If you've ever applied any of these types of attributes to your idea of God, I want to encourage you and also mildly rebuke you. Good news, you're wrong. God is holy. He's distinct. He's not like you in all the best ways. There's a verse in the Bible that points out how high above us God is, and it's a great segue to my next point, so let's read it. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, 
So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is God talking through the prophet Isaiah. And that slide is not messed up. I left out a spot and we're going to get to it. But if those were the only two verses we read, we would be correct in praying and contemplating and saying, Lord, show me all the ways that you're not like me. And I just listed a few. And that would be a really good exercise to do, right? And just, you know, really ponder. But Isaiah takes the guesswork out of it. If we expand this out to Isaiah 55, 7 through 9, we see the context. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And let them turn to our God for he will freely pardon. And then he says, I know none of you would do this if you were me. Good news, I'm not you. I'm nothing like you. I'm holy. I'm distinct. I'm other. And even though not a man alive would pardon and have mercy on you people, if you were in my place, I will. Because I'm Yahweh and I'm distinct. I'm holy. I'm higher than you. He's saying he's not like us in this passage in his goodness and his mercy and his willingness to forgive way higher and over and above than any man. But there's also another implication in this verse, and that is that there's wickedness to repent of, right? You have some unrighteousness. You have some things that need to be turned from. This implies a moral code. And if the first thing we needed to know about God's holiness was that he's holy and distinct and separate in his being, there's never been an uncreated perfection like him. Then the second thing we need to know is that God is holy, he's distinct, in his absolute moral purity. Absolute. This again would have been a shocker if we could have been there a couple thousand years ago when this was written. You would have come out of a culture that had zero moral implications for holiness. Even though Moses knew, gods occasionally show up, little g, quote-unquote gods, and declare a place holy, there was no moral implication to holiness in and of itself. Holy things, separated things in those ancient cultures could be positive, they could be negative, they could even be dangerous. It was anything that the deity decided to set aside. So that means that even temple cult prostitutes were considered holy. Things that would be absolutely shameful if you did it on your own, suddenly if you're set apart for the service of the deity, quote-unquote, it's holy. That's bizarre. And it's bizarre to us because we have a Christian understanding of holiness. And Yahweh says that holiness is tied to his character. He's the only being that is 100% morally and ethically pure with no possibility for evil. God's holiness is tied to who God is. God is 100% morally and ethically pure. And when we read the Bible, and as we live out our lives, we see this. We see it worked out in God's hatred of evil and his proactive goodness. Let's dive into this just a little bit. I want to flesh this out a little bit more. But let's look at the hatred of evil thing first. Is this good? You guys good? Excellent. You know, God really does hate evil. Here's a couple of verses. Zechariah 8.17. God tells his people, Do not plot evil against each other. Do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. It's pretty plain. How many people have gone round and round about what it means to fear the Lord, right? And we do word studies on what? The word fear, right? Well, Proverbs 8.13 says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. 
I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. God hates it. And it's not like poison ivy. You ever got poison ivy and you, you, it's annoying and it's kind of a, you know, it's a rashy thing. And some of us get it pretty bad. Some of us not so bad. And we have thoughts like, man, I knew I shouldn't have got the wood out of that wood pile. Or, you know, I wish I wouldn't have walked in those weeds. But life goes on until it's over, right? God's not allergic to evil like we're allergic to poison ivy. He has a deep, abiding, passionate abhorrence that we can't even grasp because we're not 100% morally and ethically pure like a holy God. He hates it. Hate, hate, hate. So that is one aspect of how his holiness is shown in his moral purity. But the other two are more fun. (laughs) God hates evil, but God's moral purity, his absolute distinction is shown in his good actions. To who? Everybody. Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. This isn't a wimpy passive goodness, and this isn't a wimpy passive compassion. This verse is is telling you that he feels compelled to act on behalf of. He actively does good things to all. We see Jesus echo this in Luke 6, 27 and 35. He's speaking to the crowd, and he says, Do good, oh, excuse me, to you who are listening, I say. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, do good to them. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to kind people. No, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Again, Isaiah 55, God says, I know none of you guys would be like this. I know none of you guys would show mercy and kindness to these people. Good news, I'm holy. I'm distinct. I will. But there's one other aspect to God's proactive goodness that I find interesting, and that is this. He's not just proactively good and pure in his actions. He's good and pure in his internal life. Listen to this. The prophet Jeremiah had a rough job. He had to prophesy to Israel after Israel had already gone off the deep end. They had sinned and become so evil and so corrupt that God had to judge them. If God didn't judge them, he would cease to be just or good. It had gotten that bad. So Yahweh is prophesying through Jeremiah to these people, and he's naming some of the evil things they do. Listen to this. Jeremiah 7.31b, they killed their own sons and daughters and burned them as sacrifices. And then God says this, this is something I never commanded. Something like this never even entered my mind. Think about that. We read earlier about some of the animal sacrifices, right? It was very detailed, was it not? Like, remove the crop, put it on the east side, has to be the east side, put it in the ashes, then tear it, but don't tear it apart. Even with all those details, rest assured, there was never, ever a time in eternity past that God was sitting up on his throne wondering, maybe I'll have them kill their kids. Would that work long term? Ah, I kind of want a big nation. They're going to be involved in some military exploits, having them kill their kids probably wouldn't be great for the numbers. Yeah, let's not go with that. Let's go with birds. That mindset is impossible for God. Even mulling it over can't happen because he's 100% holy, distinct, and being morally and ethically pure with no capacity for evil. He never ponders evil for anyone. At the end of the book of Jeremiah, Even though Israel is so nasty and so sinful and so evil, God cannot help but let them know how he thinks about them. 
Look at Jeremiah 29.11 in the King James. I like this. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. God is still pondering goodness for evil people in spite of the fact that that is not what they deserve. Judgment is impending, and God literally cannot stop himself from thinking good for them. Why? Would any of us do that? Would any of those fake gods do that? No. But he's holy. He's distinct. He's not like them. And he's distinct in his purity. Challenge number two. Is your view of God distinctly good? Distinctly good. Again, we usually wouldn't say, my concept of God is that he's all right. He's mostly good. He's decent. I've got a decent God. Amen, we serve a decent God. Nobody says that. God's decent all the time. Okay. But you might have a decent or eh, so-so God if you have any of the following thoughts. If you think that God only does good to good people, if you think that God enjoys punishing the wicked, if you've ever thought that God has evil intentions for anyone, and that means anyone, if you've ever thought that God can and does do evil things, or if you've ever thought that God is arrogant or self-serving, I want to tell you, encourage you, and again, mildly rebuke you, you're wrong, and God is better than that. He's holy. He's distinct. And just a note quickly on the canon does do evil things. God doesn't ever do evil. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't do it. But if you were to open up some older translations of the Bible, you would be surprised to read some verses that say things like, this evil came about by the Lord, blah, 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 blah. You know, that word there can also mean disaster or calamity. It doesn't mean morally evil all the time. So when God brings a calamitous judgment, sometimes the older translators translated that evil. But it does not mean that God has done something morally wrong. He never does. He can't. He won't. He's not even thinking about it. Amen? Amen. There's one other aspect of God's holiness that I want you guys to take with you. One, he's holy. He's distinct in his very being. He's not like us. He's not like the other gods. Two, he's distinct in his absolute goodness. Hates evil, does good, thinks good. And the third thing is that a holy God demands holiness. God demands distinction. Why in Leviticus are there all these weird things? Fences around the roof of your house. Don't wear this type of clothing. Only trim your beard this way. In fact, don't trim your beard. Organize your time around this one weird day. You can eat this. You can't eat that. When you sacrifice, sacrifice this way. Walk this way. Talk this way. Live this way. Have this calendar. He's engineering distinction. He wants it to be impossible for anybody to walk into a Jewish city back in the day and think they belong to any other God. He wants it to be obvious. You should walk into town and say, oh, these are Yahweh's people. I can tell because of this and this and this. Because they are distinct. Because they're holy. They're set apart. It's obvious they've been ripped off the chunk of pagan humanity and set aside. All of them. And it can't look the way it used to, can it? So does it still apply? Let's go back to 2 Corinthians. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. It's a holy image. 
And if that's not enough to convince us all that this holiness thing still applies, we have this guy that some of us may have heard of called Peter. And when Peter's writing, he reaches back centuries before, grabs Leviticus, rips it up by the roots, and drops it right into the lap of the first century church with this verse. But as he who called you is holy, you also shall be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. He's grabbing Leviticus, tossing it at the first century and saying, guess what? This still applies. This is still for you. This is for today. It's for us. Today, the demands of holiness from Leviticus are in our laps too. What in the world does that look like? We couldn't go back to the old way if we tried. Life has changed. The world has changed. Now, we're not off the hook with this holiness thing, but hopefully by now, holiness doesn't seem like some sort of weird burden. It should seem good. God is good. God is holy. Holiness is good. So let's ask a better question. Challenge number three. Are you willing to be distinct. A holy God still wants a holy people. A God who wants you to know he's utterly distinct from any other concepts of God wants a people that are utterly distinct from all other people. And we can do that in many of the same ways that God does it himself. So are you willing to be distinct through purity of thought and intention? Are you willing to give up the nasty, evil thoughts that you have towards anyone? Are you willing to let God purify your internal life? Are you willing? Are you willing to be distinct, to mirror God through proactive goodness? If you have the opportunity and it presents itself, will you do it? God does it every time and not just to good people. Are you willing? How about this one? Are you willing to be distinct, to mirror God's holiness through a hatred of all evil? You know, it's good to look at the ancient word fear, you know, phobos in the Greek, and to talk about what that might mean, dread or respect. But better, I think, is to go back to Proverbs 8 and just do what God says the fear of the Lord is. Work on hating evil. Evil's a funny thing. None of us have a problem hating evil. We really don't, conceptually. And none of us in this room have a problem hating evil in that guy. But all of us might have a problem hating evil here. Most evil, but not this evil. This evil I have compared to the queso at Qdoba. Why have I done that? Oh, don't give me that look. I know you know about the queso. I'm looking at you. We know it's killing us, but we get it every time. And not just the sample, the full order. With the chips, that's like 980 calories. What are we doing? And then we weep in the car, but we do it every time. Maybe I shouldn't apply this as broadly as I am, but I love queso. Sorry. Look, all of us, by virtue of being human, have weak spots that the devil will exploit. Every person in this room has a deflect, defect, a flaw, a besetting sin, a thorn in the flesh, whatever you want to call it, that the devil has gotten you with before, he knows when you're going to drop the glove and he just hammers you again and we go for it. That evil, that's what I'm asking you about. Are you willing to be distinct by choosing to see that thing the way God sees it? Are you willing to say, God, let me see this with your eyes. 
transform my whole view of this thing. I hate evil, God. Help me hate it as a concept. Help me hate it in the world and help me hate it in me so that I can love goodness more. And the last one is, are you willing to be distinct to mirror God in your very being? This is a cool one. None of us will get to be the uncreated God. It just doesn't work that way. New Age philosophies that tell you you get to become one with God are, are weird and wrong. But you know, God does make us holy. And when you become a Christian, something really amazing does happen. And in your being, you actually change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, what's that? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let me tell you certainly, this is not metaphorical nonsense. God is saying you're literally made new. You might not be able to see it, but God is saying you can't see like I see. And one day you will. You are new. When I gave my life back to the Lord in the early 20s, in the early 20s, my early 20s, I look real good, guys. Let me just say for my age, whew, coming up on 130, blowing past Moses, life is good. When I gave my life back to the Lord, I wrote this on a 3 by 5 note card and just kept it in my pocket. Because I had a lot of old friends, old drives, old desires, old problems. I needed to be constantly reminded that I was made new. And I want to constantly remind the people in here that are wondering if that's actually the fact. It's the fact. You have been made new. You can go to God knowing that He has worked a miracle and you're a new creation. And let me tell you what, from there, have the faith to work on your internal life. Say, God, purify my, uh, my intentions. Purify my thoughts. God, I believe you've already made me holy, distinct in my being. Make me holy internally. And you know what? That's going to translate to what you do. It's going to translate to your hates and your likes. You're going to start to proactively be different because you know you've been made holy in your being. You're being transformed in your internal life, and you're going to be transformed in your external life. Yes, getting my words straight. And you know what? You'll hardly be able to help yourself from becoming distinct. You're going to stick out like the best sore thumb ever. You will be holy. For some of us, that might seem daunting. That might seem impossible. It's not, sometimes even as Christians, we have problems in our life. We have habits. We have things that are tough to get over. And this all seems like far out there nonsense, right? We think we're way too messed up to work on any of this. My likes, my dislikes are all messed up. My internal life is all messed up. Where do I even start? I want to remind you guys that it's worth it to try because this verse is true. In Hebrews 12, 14, it says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I want the weight of that to sink in. If you want to see God longer than it takes for him to say, Depart from me, I never knew you. If you would like to be in God's presence longer than the time it takes to walk into the door you don't want to go through, you must be holy. There's no other way. There's no option B. This is the requirement. Good news. Yeah, I know. This was for people that felt, thought it felt daunting already, right? Not encouraging so far. But it would take a miracle to make any of us holy, wouldn't it? Good news. When Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, who he was far too easy on, by the way, he doesn't say a nasty thing to them. Like they, That was the best letter ever. I read it when I want to be encouraged. He says this in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, We're always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you 
holy and through your belief in the truth. If you haven't even taken step one, if you haven't even begun your holiness journey, if it seems impossible, if it seems daunting, it is. It would take a miracle. Let God do that miracle. And there's no time like the present. The Holy Spirit, at the end of the day, is the only one that can do the work, and He's the one that wants to do the work. And right now, today, this morning, if you haven't done so already, I would encourage you to let Him. Thank you, guys. I'll give it to Israel to close.